Jesus is. And if you took a poll of people, uh, some in the church and maybe some outside the church, probably more outside the church, and asked them uh, this one simple question of who is Jesus, you'd probably get this wide array of answers. And um, you probably would kind of be able to categorize some of those, uh, especially for folks who are not in the church and maybe not believers. Uh, you kind of get two distinct answers. One of them is that they don't believe Jesus existed at all. Uh, that there was no historical person named Jesus. There was that he just never existed. Um, that all these stories are just kind of made up, and so they just completely deny the existence of Jesus altogether. Right. And the problem with their stance and the problem with their argument is that even very devout, uh, very outspoken atheists and, and pretty much every historical scholar would agree that there was a person named Jesus that existed in history. So really to deny his existence doesn't line up with the historical picture that we see even in a non-Christian world, right? And so to, to deny his existence would be to plead ignorance uh, willfully to the historical evidence that is there, right? So some folks would say he just never existed. Other folks would say, well, uh, he existed and he was somewhat a spiritual leader, that, that he was a good person. They may even give him a title of a prophet, and, um, but he would kind of boil down to that he was this kind of enlightened person that had good teachings and kind of showed us how we should live our life through our teachings and how we should uh, be good people through our teachings, that he was this inspired good person. And uh, so when I hear folks kind of give that description of Jesus, um, I often kind of wonder how they came up to that conclusion. Well, what led you to believe this about Jesus? And I'm just wondering how you arrived at that conclusion. And most of the time what they'll tell you is that they arrived at that conclusion because it's what they've heard other people say. Someone will say it's because of things that I've read about him. Um, and when they typically say it's things I've read about him, I'm like, oh, well, that's curious. What, if, what is it you've been reading about him? And very rarely do they point to the Bible as their source of information. Instead, they're reading kind of secondhand or thirdhand uh, accounts of who Jesus is and what other people have said about Jesus. And uh, I often kind of challenge folks like, well, have you ever considered who Jesus says he is? Because you're reading about all of these other people and what they say about Jesus. But have you ever stopped to wonder who Jesus himself says that he is? And so the real question is not who do we think he is, but who has he told us that he is? And if we want to know someone, we should go to that source and we should say, hey, who are you? And then they're going to give us clues of their identity. And then it's our job to see if those clues are valid or not, because not every valid or not every claim of identity is true. Okay. For example, if I told you that I was Superman, right? Some of you are like, write me off already. You're like, well, obviously that's not true because you don't have the cape, all right? And you'd be correct, right? So if I gave you a claim like that, you would look for some kind of evidence. How can I validate whether what he said about himself is true or not true, okay? And it's not sufficient for me to say, I feel like Superman. It's simply a claim of, I am this, right? And so with Christ, we want to do the exact same thing. We want to go to him and we want to say, who does Christ say that he is? Who is it that he tells us that his person and his identity is? And then it's our job to see those things and say, is this a valid claim or not? And so as we're going to go through the next several weeks, and actually it's seven weeks, because there's seven statements in the book of John that start with, I am. And then he gives some kind of uh, picture or image of who he is, some kind of characteristic that tells us about who he is. And so over the next few weeks, uh, seven of them, 
We're going to walk through these seven I am statements of Jesus. And the first one is found in John chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 33. Um, And we're going to see that at three different times in this passage that we read, he refers to himself as the bread or the bread of life. And so we're going to dive into this text and, and we're going to kind of see what he means about that. And so my prayer is that as we go through this statement and through all of these statements, that we really get this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and this idea that we are to conform our life to him because he is the great I am who speaks these things to us. And so, like I said, if you've got your Bibles, we'll start in John chapter 6. For time's sake, we won't read all of it. Uh, We'll start in verse 33, read through verse 35, and then we'll skip down to verse 47. But starting in verse 33, Jesus is speaking. He says, For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And then we're going to skip down uh, to verse 47 and read down through verse 58. Verse 47, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of this world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the third day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna that your fathers ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for your spirit being in this place. And I pray that we are open to that. I pray not just in this physical space, but in the spiritual heart that is in each one of us, Father. God, I pray that we not just sing for a desire for the Holy Spirit, but God, we really do long for it. And not just in this space, in this time, but in every day and every moment of our life, Father. God, I pray this morning as we work through this text, God, there are some here that need to taste and experience this living bread I pray they do that today, Father. God, there are others of us who need to hunger for afresh and anew this morning, Father. And so, God, whether we're here to to sample it for the first time or, God, whether we're here to, to come and refresh our hunger for it, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit works in us and through us. God, that you will speak to us, Father. God, I pray that we will listen to your word. God, that when we leave here, we leave here hungry And desperate for more of who you are. And yet satisfied with all that you are, Father. So God, I pray that you'll speak. 
God, I pray that we will listen with our ears and with our heart in tune to you. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was in a seminary, uh, we were new. We didn't know anybody. We didn't, uh, we didn't really know any of the people that lived around us. We knew a couple of students. Uh, but we moved into this apartment, um, and, and there were some families in that apartment. And we got to know a couple of families that were around us. And one of the families uh, decided that they were becoming good friends with us, good enough friends, that they brought to April and I uh, a bag of this gooey stuff that was, and it had written on it, Amish Friendship Bread, all right? Now, some of you are aware of Amish friendship bread. You, you've been in that world, um, and some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. So let me kind of give you an idea of what Amish friendship bread is. The Amish have developed this recipe of a bread starter um, that basically lives in a bag, all right, and just lives on your countertop. And every so often, you have to have like this set of instructions because every so often you have to flip the bag over and you have to knead the bag and, and mold the bag, and then you have to um, flip it over in the next couple of days. And then every so often, you have to feed the bag, all right? You have to put extra sugar, extra flour, and stuff that this stuff, whatever this gooey apparatus is, it's going to eat and it's alive on your counter, all right? It's kind of a creepy thing when you think about it, all right? But our friends gave us this friendship bread. And the reason it's called friendship bread is because the idea is that after about two weeks of you uh, kneading this thing and flipping this bag over and, and uh, feeding this thing, that after about two weeks, you're supposed to take what's in that bag and you're supposed to divide it into about five different parts, all right? One part is the part that you get to enjoy, all right? You get to bake that one part Put that in the oven, do all the work, and bake that one part. Right? The other one, you put in another bag, and then you start the cycle all over. Okay, So you start kneading and flipping and all that stuff. And then the other three parts, you're supposed to share. You're supposed to give to your friends. Okay, And when you give them this little bag, you're supposed to give them this little card that has the instructions of like, Day one, flip it. Day two, flip it over. Day three, flip it the third way. And like all these different instructions uh, and, and then defeat it this way. And, and so that's the friendship part is that once you, you're supposed to share this thing. Now, what they don't tell you is um, you really should know a lot of people before you invest in friendship bread. Okay. I don't know if you, you like, we kind of got this thing. We're like so excited because we're like, oh yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to share this with all our friends. But you know, think about it, like every two weeks, you're getting three things that you're supposed to give away, right? And you wouldn't think giving away stuff is hard to do, except you, like if you add that up, like three weeks or in two weeks, you have three. And then in six or in four weeks, you have six. So in a month's time, you've had to have six friends to give this to, right? In a year's time, that means you have to have 72 friends, and you're going to call them friends because you're going to give them stuff, right? The problem with that is that those 72 friends that you know, they can't know each other and they can't like each other because then they start giving it to each other before you get to them on your list, right? And so what you quickly find out is, one, you may not have as many friends as you thought you did. <laughs> that was our case. And number two, you may find out that some of your friends overlap, Right? That you're friends with this person, but they've already got friendship bread from somebody else. And so now you don't know what to do with this extra friendship bread. Right? And so there's, a, there's all of these. Uh, you, you've got to find people who really want to do this. And um, I'll just go ahead and confess to you that our friendship bread died somewhere along the way. All right? Somewhere along the way, we quit feeding it and flipping it and changing its diaper and all those things that you... It's kind of like taking care of a baby. Like It's pretty demanding if you've ever done this. All right? There's just all these instructions... Um, that you have to do. And the, the thing that we learned, one, we didn't have as many friends as we thought because we thought this would be so simple. The other thing we learned is bread is really hard work, right? It is very demanding of your time, and it's not very forgiving of your time. When it says it's baking day, 
It's baking day. Whether you feel like it's baking day or not, it doesn't matter if you've had the worst day at work or the best day at work or you just want to relax after work. No, it's baking day. And you've got to do it on that day or it messes the whole system up. When it's time to flip it over, if you don't flip it over, then it messes the whole thing up. If you don't feed it on the right day, then it messes the whole thing up. And so if you've ever kind of been stuck in this, this friendship bread or making bread or if you, or you are a bread baker, you know that baking bread takes a lot of work. In fact, for a while, I think our April and I's schedule revolved around this bread starter, that we had to schedule things around it. And, and so it just takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of work, and it takes all this effort to do all of these things before you get any results out of it for yourself, right? And so it's kind of interesting that people in the first century, they would have known Right? They would have known the amount of work, and here I am complaining about flipping a bag over, and that was really how easy it was. Right? But folks in the first century, they knew how much work bread took. Right? So when Jesus introduces himself as the bread of life, and this bread of life that comes down from heaven, he's really setting up this huge contrast between what they think of normal bread and how he is different than that. Right? And so he says that he is this bread, or bread of God, or the bread of life, that is sent from heaven. And to do this means that something is different about this. This doesn't require work on our part. So in the first verse we read in verse 33, Jesus says, For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right? Now there's the significance uh, to this because there's a conversation that's happening right before this. And we didn't read into that conversation uh, just for time's sake. But the conversation that's happening kind of right before Jesus starts talking about this bread, and he is the bread of life, is a conversation that points back to the Old Testament, right? And some of you may be very familiar with this idea of bread coming down from heaven. They called it manna in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, the people of Israel have, have been released, they've escaped from slavery, and they have kind of moving out of Egypt, and they're trying to make their way into the promised land uh, of Israel where they're they going to be a nation. But to get from Egypt to Israel, they have to move quite a bit of ways, right? And so as they're moving, they start running out of food. You're talking about a pretty massive group of people, probably over a million people moving kind of through the desert at the time. And it doesn't take long if you're moving to deplete your resources, right? So they kind of have depleted their resources. They're starting to run out of food. And so they go to Moses, who's the leader of the nation at the time. They go to Moses and they're like, Moses, why would you bring us out here? Like, at least when we were in Egypt, yes, things were hard, things were difficult there, but at least when we were there, we weren't starving to death. We didn't have to worry about food there because we, we could grow our food, we could grow our crops, and now you've brought us out here in this desert, we're moving around constantly, we're on our way from one place to another, and we can't grow the crops here. There's no way for us to sustain our life here. We, we can't grow the grain, we can't gather the grain, we can't harvest the grain, we can't thresh the wheat. We can't do any of those things out here. And, and so at least back there, we had food. And, and so, Moses, what are you doing bringing us out here so we don't have this food? We, we're going to starve to death out here. And so Moses goes before God and he talks to God. And, and so what God does is he provides them food. They're in the wilderness when they couldn't provide for themselves he provides for them. He provides this bread. They call it manna. And so uh, this kind of this beautiful idea that to get what they needed, they didn't have to work for it. right? They, they really didn't have to grow the grain. They didn't have to harvest the grain. They didn't have to, to gather up the grain. They didn't have to grind it. They didn't have to flip the bags or feed the bags. They didn't have to do none of that stuff. All they had to do was wake up every single morning, and there it was. It was just out there. 
And they just simply had to walk out there and gather it up. That was their only responsibility. Go out there, gather up what you need, and use that for the day. And so every single morning, this bread was out there. It was provided. And so really the only thing they had to do was to reach this state of desperation where they called out to God and said, hey, we cannot do this on our own. Right? And so well, there's no way for us to feed ourselves. We can't plant these crops. And so for us, looking at this picture of Jesus being the bread of life is really to come to this realization that we cannot do this on our own. We're going to be dependent on God providing something for us. And so the first thing we're going to have to realize if we're going to receive this bread of life is we've got to realize where it comes from. And Jesus makes this pretty clear in verse 51. He makes it clear that He is this bread and His gift comes directly from heaven. And so in verse 51, He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're going to come back to the end of that verse in just a little bit. But the children of Israel, they really didn't have to do anything to earn this bread. All they had to do was come to this point of hopelessness. They had to come to this point where they were desperate. They had to come to this point where they realized they they had nothing that was going to sustain them. There was no way within their own power they could extend or sustain their life as it was. And so all they had to do was cry out in desperation and seek the one who could provide for them. And, And so we look at this idea and we see this, that this is exactly how we come to Christ. That Christ truly is this gift. That it is this truly heavenly sin, unearned, undeserved gift that He gives. And it's this beautiful idea. And it's really this picture of grace. The very fact that Jesus is present physically with them is an act of grace itself. And they didn't do anything to earn Jesus coming. And you and I haven't done anything since then to earn Jesus coming. We haven't done anything to earn our salvation. And so when He tells us that He's the bread of life. He's pointing us back to this other story that says what you need is provided by the one who can provide, not by what you did. And so for us to come to Jesus as the bread of life is for us to come in this state of hopelessness, for us to come in this state of desperation, to literally say, I have nothing to offer here. And without your help, I'm going to waste away to nothing. And so Jesus steps in. He says, listen, I And what you're looking for. I am that bread of life that comes down from heaven. And you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to wash yourself up. And you don't have to do all of the stuff that you think you have to do to get into the presence of God. Because I came to you. See, that's the first part when he reveals himself is this picture of coming down from heaven. Is he's revealing our desperate attempt to do all of this stuff by ourselves, And yet what we desperately need to do is to call out to him. But there's this other picture. You see, not only is he demonstrating his grace here. But this is a clear depiction of his divinity as well. Because when he says that I am the one who came down from heaven, there's also this group of skeptics. There's this group that starts to argue with each other because they don't believe that what he's saying. In fact, they get pretty um, argumentative. They're confused. They get pretty angry at it. In verse 42, uh, we're going to look at kind of see why they're confused. In verse 42, it says, They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came or I come from heaven? You see, what they knew about Jesus was what the physical aspects told them about Jesus. They knew his mother, right? It was very clear that Mary was his mother. They assumed that Joseph was his father because at this point, 
they hadn't heard the stories. Mary hadn't revealed the stories to them. Uh, and the rest of the, the Gospels haven't been written. So they don't know that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. And so here you have people strictly looking physically at Jesus and like, he didn't come down from heaven. I remember I went to his birthday party. Like, I remember when he was one and we had that smash cake. And just kidding, they didn't do any of that back then, all right? But I remember his mom and his dad and the pregnancy. Like, I remember all of that. Like, I remember going and taking uh, baby shower gifts to her. I remember, like, going to visit her in the hospital. Again, they didn't do any of that either. But, like, they're like, this is, what is he talking about? How can he say that he's coming down from heaven? The reality is that we know his parents. We know when he was born. We know when these things happen. And what they don't see is just the, the spiritual aspect of what he's talking about. All they're looking is at the physical idea. You see, they know Mary and they assume Joseph is his father. Uh, but they don't know the full story. What they don't know is that Jesus existed long before Mary and Joseph. And so when he makes this claim that he came down from heaven, uh, he's really making this claim that he is divine, that he is eternal, that he's existed long before Mary and Joseph ever did. Right? What he's really doing, and he's claiming when he uses this frame, I am, and then he connects it to the one who came down from heaven, what he's telling him is I was the one who was in heaven, and now I've come down to you. Now, for you and me, we know this. But for that Jew sitting in the first century, this was a very difficult thing for them to process because the only one they knew in heaven was the I am who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And so the I am who speaks to Moses through the burning bush is God. And so when, Mo, or when Jesus claims this title of I am the one who came down from heaven, what he's telling them is I am divine and I existed for all of eternity past. I'll exist for all of eternity future. I am different than what you just see with your eyes. There is more to me than you know. And so what he's telling them is this is a claim to his divinity. This is the claim that, listen, the God that Moses spoke to in the book of Exodus that claimed to be I am, and that was the title he chose to use for himself, that's me. I am more than just a human being. I am God. And so that's the reason so many of them were so upset at this claim, because now he's claiming not just to be the son of Joseph and Mary, he's claiming to be God himself. And he doesn't have a problem with that, but they do. And because he is God, he's able to do things that nobody else is able to do. And he's able to satisfy their greatest need in a way that nothing else can. Right? And for some of us reading this text, bread is, is kind of an odd picture, and it's kind of an unusual image for somebody who's wanting to claim divinity, somebody who's wanting to claim to be divine, or someone who's wanting to claim to be God, right? And I want you to think for just a moment. If you were to read the word God or think about the word God, or somebody said the word God and asked you to tell me about the first thing that popped in your mind, my guess is that other than today, right now in this moment, 99.9999% of us, bread is not the first thing that popped into your mind, okay? It's just not an image we associate with God, right? And there's, there's reason for that. Man, we think of like angels, we think of heaven, we think of all these pictures, but bread is not one of them. And so the question becomes, why is Jesus associating himself with bread, right? And we've kind of already talked about this Old, Old Testament context that he's pointing them back to Exodus. He's pointing them back to this story in the Old Testament. But for those sitting around him, there's a little more immediate context that he's pointing them back to. You see, we didn't read all of John chapter 6, but the story that starts John chapter 6 is an amazing demonstration of his divinity that centers around bread, it centers around food. 
You see, the story that starts in John chapter 6 is that Jesus is teaching on the hillside. And he's teaching 5,000 men. It doesn't tell us how many women or children in the group. It specifically says 5,000 men. So there's a good chance there's fifteen to 20,000 people in this group. And Jesus is teaching this group. He's telling them all of these great things. He's revealing all kinds of heavenly knowledge to them. And then it gets around dinner time. And all of a sudden, people start looking at their watches, and their stomachs maybe growling just a little bit. And this is when we realize that they were not good Baptists. Because we as good Baptists, we know that if we're going to keep you at dinner time, we got to feed you. All right? We at least need a potluck lunch or dinner or something. Somebody better sign up for a casserole somewhere, and it better not be green beans. Okay? And so we understand that folks are going to need food. But they didn't plan this way. Right? All they were doing was they were just going to go hear Jesus talk, and Jesus maybe got a little long-winded for them, and yet they were fascinated enough to sit there all the way until it's time to eat. And so the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but dude, you went overtime. All right? You're not getting paid for overtime. We put that clock in the back of the church, and you just totally disregarded that it said it was noon and lunchtime. But these people got to eat, and we're kind of hungry. And so they try to tell Jesus, like, just send the people away. Send them back into the town so they can go get something to eat. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You feed them. And all of a sudden, these 12 disciples who have been following Jesus up to this point, they're kind of scratching their head, and they're like, how we, Jesus, do you know how many people are here? Like, do you know the logistics of trying to figure out how to get food for all of these people right here? And Jesus is like, yeah, go do it. Have them all sit down. And then you collect what you can. And so they have all these people, and they have them all sit down. And they're like, all right, who's got food? And this one little boy stands up in the back, and he's like, maybe. I might have some snacks. What's it worth to you? No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that, all right? That's what I would do if I was there. But he has his lunch, and his, his lunch is, guess what? Five loaves of bread and two fish. That's all he's got. That's a meal. When I'm saying fish, like, we're not talking like a king mackerel. We're talking like little sardines here, okay? When I'm saying loaves of bread, we're not talking about, like, the sandwich bread. We're talking about little, little rolls, Right? And this is all they have for fifteen to 20,000 people. And Jesus says, oh yeah, we got it. This is enough. And he takes this little boy's lunch, this little boy's dinner, and he starts to break it. And he prays over it, and he breaks it, and he starts to spread this out, and he breaks it more, and he breaks it more, and he just keeps breaking it. And then this beautiful part of the story is that all of these people, these fifteen to 20,000 people, they're all sitting on this hillside, and he tells the disciples, all right, go feed these people. And so they start feeding the people, and I want you to see something that happens in the story that we kind of gloss over in verse 12. Man, these people, they had a feast with this little boy's lunch. In verse 12, it says, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. When they were full is a phrase that you and I gloss over so quickly but I want you to understand, for those in the first century, and even some for people today, they've never known full. What they've known is they've had enough. What they've known is they're content. What they've known is that's all the food that was there. And so the food ran out before my desire ran out. And so I just got up and I left the table. Most of them had never known full to this extent before. Most of them had never been to a Baptist potluck dinner. Most of them had never been to a Thanksgiving meal where you just are so full and you make those, like you're just sitting there and you're just kind of rubbing your belly and you're just uh, just so full and content and you kind of make those statements like, man, I'm just so full, I'm just not going to eat for another week, which is such a lie because in a few hours you're going to be eating again, right? But they've never known that. Life was so different for them. And so for 12 or 15 to 20,000 people to be full 
is so different. And for many of them sitting in that crowd, this was the first time they were full and they were content and they had leftovers. Many of us, we have leftovers. We put them in a refrigerator. They never had leftovers before in their life. And so from one little boy's lunch, he feeds fifteen to 20,000 people and there are leftovers. And so this is this great experience, this moment. And so all of them are just kind of looking at Christ and they're all full and they're all satisfied. And this lasts for just a little while. Because the next day, they're going to want more. And so they don't necessarily want more of Jesus. They want more to what fills their stomach. They want to eat more. And for some of them, maybe it was the first time they were full. But now the day has passed, and now they're unfull. And so now they want more of what they've got. And so they were there, and they, they go after Jesus. And they, they try to reach back to what satisfied them, to what brought them to this point of satisfaction. A little while later, they come to him probably the next day, and their bellies are starting to churn, their bellies are starting to growl, and they're no longer full physically. And Greg Matty, that wrote a book, says, I am changes who I am. He says, we are prone to return to the place where we find satisfaction. You see, when Jesus broke this bread and gave this bread and he broke these fish and he gave these fish, people found physical satisfaction there. And what do they do? They go back to it. And Jesus had moved and they chased him down. They go back to find Jesus. They go back to the place where they had satisfied. They go back to that place where they were content and full. They're going back to look for Jesus. And when they come looking for Jesus the next day, he's got some pretty interesting words for him. In verse 26, he kind of changes the conversation in verse 26. He answers them because they ask for the more bread or they ask him where he went. In verse 26, I assure you, you're looking for me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. And then verse 27. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal of approval on Him. So what He's telling them, listen, that food that you have, it's not your biggest need. It is not meant to satisfy you fully. Satisfaction and the feeling of a full stomach that you get from, from that food, it's only going to last for just a little while. And the reality is that what he tells them about bread is what is true about everything in this world. It doesn't matter if it's bread or finances or people or anything in this world. Whatever you think you find the most satisfying in this world, it's never going to be enough. There's going to be a come a time when you need more of that. And for some of us, that's an addiction that we have. We, we found something that satisfied us. It, it covered a pain or a, a heartache for a few moments. And all of a sudden, that heartache returns. We find ourselves going back to that place of satisfaction. And yet what Christ is telling us is that whatever you're looking for to physically satisfy you, it's not your greatest need. It's not going to bring, what content, what's not going to bring contentment and satisfaction to you. What you need to do is not worry about the things that are in this world that are perishing, the food that you spend so much time jigging after and chasing after in this world. What you need to do is chase this deeper satisfaction. You need to chase something that meets your biggest need and something that's going to satisfy for all eternity. You see, your biggest need is not a physical need. It's an eternal destination change. And normal bread cannot, cannot do that. And he tells them, he's, listen, you know that because your ancestors tried that. They only looked for what they needed right now. They said, hey, God, we need food in the wilderness. And what God gave them food in the wilderness. But what it didn't do was it didn't change their heart to be inclined to him. And so the reality is their biggest need was that they needed their heart changed to come back and be restored to this relationship 
with God. And we look at verse 49 and verse 50. He says, listen, your, your ancestors, your, your fathers ate this manna in the wilderness and they died. Every day they got up and they did the same thing. They chased the same food that was there given to them every single day. And it didn't fit them. It didn't satisfy them. It goes on to verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. You see, our biggest need is not food on the table. Our biggest need is not your next drink or your next drug push. Your biggest need is not a bigger bank account or a bigger check account. Our biggest need is not a spouse. It's not children in your marriage. Your biggest need is to have your eternity aligned with His. Your biggest need is to know that for all of eternity, you are set and you're connected to Him. And you listen, there are a lot of great organizations out there that will do great work. And they put food on the plates of people who are needy. There's, there's several food pantries in our area that we refer folks to. And some of us have worked in those food pantries, and, and many of them do a great job. But one of the reasons that we want to do a food pantry in Cleveland is because we want everybody that walks in for food to realize that food is not their biggest need. We want everybody that walks in or calls this building uh, for rent assistance or housing assistance, whatever their need is, that's not their biggest need. Their biggest need is Christ. And what Jesus is telling us is you will keep chasing satisfaction. You will keep chasing all of these things that are temporary until you find the one that meets your greatest need, until you find true satisfaction, eternal life in Him. J.W. Hyde once wrote that if every person in the world had adequate food, housing, income, if all men were equal, if every possible societal evil and injustice were done away with, men would still need one thing. They would still need Christ. You see, what we need most is what satisfies the longest. Not in the here and now, but for all eternity. And so that's why in verse 58, Jesus makes it clear that our greatest need can only be fulfilled by Him. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna that your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Our greatest need is to be connected with Him for all eternity. It is to be with Him in all that we are and all that we say because it is something that will never fade away. And our greatest need is to be content in Him. When I was a kid, one of the things I loved to do was to go to the fair. Right? Many of you love to go to the fair. I'll be honest with you. I have not been to the Rowan County Fair. I apologize for that. Uh, but one of the great things that we love to do, we had the Stokes County Fair. Um, just to let you know, the Stokes County Fair is about the size of this room. Okay, um, So there's not a lot there. So we got our real joy from going to, I think I can still say this, the Dixie Classic Fair in Winston. Right? Some of you are aware of that fair. I love that fair. And, and so some of you have been there, and uh, we loved it because there was food that we could get there that you couldn't get anywhere else. Right? If you wanted deep fried, it was there. Okay? There were rides that we could ride at the Dixie Classic Fair that you couldn't ride anywhere else. Right? And I loved it. Like I love just walking up to the gates. And if you've ever been even to the run camp, like you just walk on the property and you just breathe it in. You're like... For me, this is home. Like, I could just live here, right? But I'll share with you, there is one, there's one part of the Dixie Classic Fair that even to this day still almost brings a tear to my eye. It's almost depressing, this part of the fair, right? And so there's all these rides. There's all this great food. There's all this great stuff that you can do. There's entertainment. But there's this building off to the side, and I think it's called the Annex building over there. And when you walk in that building, there's all kinds of craft projects and, and things that people have built, and there's, they've got this whole section 
of photography that, that people enter their pictures that they've taken. Kids have entered pictures they've drawn. And, and it's just all these amazing projects. And this is where people have entered this stuff to the fair. And so there's blue ribbons on some and green ribbons on some. So people win prizes for all these things. And that's not the depressing part. The depressing part's in the very back of that room. Because that's kind of cool. Like, I like going in there and like seeing, like, somebody create this, like, three-year-old made this massive Lego creation. It's, like, this big. And you don't know what it is, but it's made by a three-year-old. So, ta-da, he gets a blue ribbon because he's the only one that did it. So, anyway, like, those things are cool. And then you get to the back of the room. And the back of the room is all food, right? And, and some of it's pretty cool because you can walk up and you can see, like, there are jars of honey. And people have entered jars of honey. And I don't know how you judge a jar of honey, like, by the color. Of, I don't know how that works. But they judge those jars of honey like people enter pickles. And so you can get a judge uh, to come in and tell if those pickles are the best pickles or not. And I don't know how all that works, uh, but they do. And so, like, those things, I'm still not depressed by those things. But then in the kind of the very corner of that room is where the depression sets in. Because as you're looking at all these jars and all this stuff that, that is cool and, and pretty neat, then you get to this section that's just like this whole wall of cakes and bread. And they're all in a glass case, like just one big glass case. Right? Now some of you are like, why is that depressing? Here's the reason that's depressing to me. All right, you ready? Because at the end of the fair, you can come and pick up your pickles. And you can take your prize-winning pickles home, and you can pop the lid off that jar, and you can eat your prize-winning pickles. Right? At the end of the fair, two weeks after those things have been sitting there, you can take that prize-winning honey and you can dip your cracker in it or whatever, and you can eat that prize-winning honey. But I want you to think about that for a moment. I don't know anybody who's going to go open up that glass case and eat that cake or that bread that's been sitting in that glass case in that room for at least two weeks. Right? All of, and, I, and I begin to think of like all the work that people put in to those cakes and bread just to sit there. And the depressing part is like, I love the smell of fresh baked bread. I just love the smell of it. And like cake, obviously I love it all the time. But like, I just love the smell of it. And I begin to think like, there's some husband sitting at home who for like three days just smelt this amazing smell of bread. And his whole house just permeated with the smell of bread. And he got ready to go cut a slice of it. His wife said, don't you touch that bread. That's going to the fair. And he just had to look at this bread and was like, but it smells so good. And she's like, don't touch it. So I'll cut your fingers off if you do, right? That was the Rakes family. That's how we did things. We protected it that way. And so she bundled up this bread, or maybe he did, bundled up this bread, and they took it and they put it in a glass case. And no one ever got to taste it. Maybe a judge got to taste part of it. And maybe they were just judging on the looks of it. But here was all of this work and all of this effort just to sit on a shelf. And the depressing part to me is if you're going to put that much work into something, if you're going to put that much effort, if you're going to make somebody else smell that goodness, you should let them consume that goodness. Bread, in my personal opinion, is meant to be consumed, not put on display, even though it looks great. It, it's meant to, for you to consume it and get something out of it. And we find the same thing is true with the bread of life. Won't you look back with me in verse 51? I told you we'd come back to the end of that verse in just a second. Jesus is not only claiming his divinity, he's not only claiming uh, his grace here, but he's declaring his mission in this verse. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. You see, the only way the bread of life is going to do what it's designed to do, if it's going to do any good for anyone, it has to be 
consumed. In order for us to gain the eternal life that He promised, He has to lay down His life for His life to be consumed for our benefit. His life has to be destroyed to save ours. And He goes on in verses 53 through 56, And Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not have life in yourself. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the third day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Now, what he's telling us is kind of this beautiful picture of the sacrifice that he is about to make. And he's not expecting us to literally eat his body or literally drink his blood. That's a misconception that happened um, with folks in the first century and some even within the modern time, within a different denomination of the, the body and the bread that we eat at communion time. And so he's not telling us physically that's what we have to do. What he's telling us is that in order for me to give you life, my life has to be consumed. That my body has to be broken and my blood has to be spilled out and it has to reside in you. You have to believe in me. And he says that several times in this passage, that your belief in me is how you obtain this thing. So I wanted to kind of sew all of these pieces together that Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, that I was sent to heaven to satisfy your greatest need. And, and our greatest need is to have eternal life like he does. Our greatest need is to be with him forever and to, to abide in him and him to abide in us. But for that to happen, his life and his flesh and his blood, it had to be consumed and it was consumed not by eating it, but by giving it on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. Why? Because our greatest need was not physical. Our greatest need was a chance for salvation, a chance for forgiveness, a chance for eternal life, and a chance to be eternally satisfied with Him. So we started with this question of who is Jesus? And we started talking about some of the answers that people may give you to that question. And honestly, some of you may give those answers. But now we've come to this point where the reality is the question is not who is Jesus, but do we believe who Jesus says he is himself? And so he's told you that I am the bread of life. I'm the one who came from heaven. I'm the one who gives grace. I'm the one who gives mercy. I'm the one who can redeem you and meet your greatest needs. And I am the one who will give up everything so that you can have everything. And so the real question is, does he give us sufficient evidence to validate that he is what he says he is? And I think if you look at the story before where he is a man who can feed fifteen to 20,000 people with the bread and the lunch of one person, I think he satisfies that he is more than just a person. I think when he tells you that he can satisfy your greatest need, and for many of us sitting in this room, we've been to him, and we've had our greatest need and our satisfaction met in him, and we found that all the stuff that we were chasing throughout the rest of our life, it just kept bringing us back to itself over and over again. And yet Jesus is the only one who says, listen, if you want satisfaction, it's in me and me alone. And for us who have met Christ, we know that's a true claim. We know that's a valid claim. And then do we accept the fact that he had to be consumed? The answer, again, is yes. That even historically, he gave his life. The question is, do we accept it as his life giving us life? Will we accept him as the bread that gives life to us today? Let's pray together.